Hello out there. I'm your host, Carla Nappi, and welcome to the inaugural interview of the East Asian Studies channel of the New Book Network. I just finished a Skype interview with Dagmar Schaefer, who currently works at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, and just published... Hello out there. I'm your host, Carla Nappi, and welcome to the inaugural interview of the East Asian Studies channel of the New Book Network. I just finished a Skype interview with Dagmar Schaefer, who currently works at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, and just published a book fresh off the presses of the University of Chicago Press called The Crafting of the Ten Thousand Things, Knowledge and Technology in 17th Century China. Now, as you'll see over the course of this interview, this is a book that is, uh, I think, very important both for historians of China and also for people interested in the history of technology and of science more broadly. It's set up as a kind of puppet theater, focusing on its main character, a seemingly unimportant guy named Song Yingxing, in his uh, sort of late career blossoming after, um, as you'll see, he has this fateful picnic um, in which he gets very angry, and then um, sort of his career explodes along with his anger after that. He's very famous among uh, historians of science, certainly of those of us who work on China, for writing a book called the Tiangong Kai Wu, um, which is translated by Schaefer here as the works of heaven, um, in which he ranges um, just as broadly as Schaefer does in her really elegantly written and beautiful treatment of the man and his work and his context over topics such as salt, gunpowder, gunpowder cooking oil, um, bricklaying, and the morality of things. Um, so join us for this interview in which uh, Dr. Schaefer will introduce um, this really wonderful man, his wonderful work, and the theater of his life. So today we are here with Dagmar Schaefer. Uh, Dagmar is the leader of an independent research group at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin. Um, and Dagmar just published, it's hot off the presses with Chicago University Press, a book called The Crafting of the 10,000 Things, Knowledge and Technology in 17th Century China. Hi, Dagmar. Thanks so much for being with us today. Hi, Carla. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about my book. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Um, and it's really, it's such a fantastic book. I recently had the chance to read through it. Um, and it's just, I'm really excited about showing uh, the audience and sort of introducing them to the world that you've created with this book. It's um, it's a story, and we'll get into this um, as we um, go through our time, but it's the story of um, seemingly a, a very innocuous guy, right? A, a character that I think those of us who work on China have heard a lot about, but people who work on the history of science and technology might not know anything about. But um, what I love about this book is that you use this character to really open up not just um, the world of Ming China for your audience and the, a, a completely new world in the history of science and technology, um, but it's also beautifully written, um, and it really unfolds very much like a piece of theater. Um, so I'm, I'm really delighted that you are uh, sharing your thoughts on this book with us today. So thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for these nice words about my book. Oh, my it's pleasure. So let's get to that. Um, I wonder if you might talk, uh, begin our interview by just saying a little bit about yourself and how you encountered this uh, topic in the first place. 
Yeah, well, I think as probably usual with these projects, it just uh, hit on me and I did not search for it. Although I must say that in a way um, it, it was pre prepared by my professor who was very much into the history of science and technology. And he also interested, introduced me to the issue of technology in China. I started out with uh, working on silk technology And uh, certainly Sung In Ching's book is a really very important and relevant source for this kind of topic. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, well, then after a while, I thought it might be interesting to look more into the reasons why a person in the 17th century wrote about technology. And I must say, I never really imagined that this topic could uh, really keep me so keep me for so long so i started with it as a kind of small issue or side issue and then somehow i really got into that book and I, it became more and more fascinating and somehow i thought it's very easy to translate at the beginning and in the end i realized it's such a rich and complicated source and so interesting for the history of science and technology it needs a little bit more work mm -hmm. well why don't we for readers who haven't yet had the benefit to to read the book and to be introduced to this fascinating character song Ying could you start off by telling us a little about a little bit about who this guy is where he's living and um to kind of set up set the stage for readers so who mm -hmm. is song Ying and how is he so fascinating yeah Uh, this is probably already part of the story because Sun Yinxing is a really very insignificant person in his time, which means like he was a, uh, a commoner in a way, an official, but in a way also a commoner. He lived in the south of China. Nobody probably really knew him. He was not one of those guys who lived at the court and uh, who could publish widely or disseminate his work widely, he had no social reputation. And um, then at one point in his life, I think when he was around his 50s, he decided to sit down and write quite some books. And one of them was the Chengdu Kaiu. So the, what I translate as the works of heaven and the inception of things. And uh, in this book, he writes about 18 selected fields of craft. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, That is very unusual for many times. Not that people write about crafts or that they are interested about technology, but rather this specific outline of this book is very much out of the ordinary for the late Ming era. And uh, it also, in a way, is very near to, I think, what we would consider technology nowadays. And I found this very interesting. Why does a person in the 17th century do that? Yeah. Right. Thank you. For um, I mean, for those of us who have worked a little bit on the history of science and technology in China, um, who have had the benefit of taking a look at Song's book, it's just full of fascinating material and really interesting stories and all kinds of things um, that are really fascinating to a historian of science and technology today. What, um, what most fascinated you about this book? Sort of what drew you in when you first started reading this book about which you ultimately wrote your book? Mm -hmm. um, I must say, at least when we talk about the project that brought forth this book, it was not the book itself that I was mm -hmm. fascinated about. Although, I mean, it is such a, 
an acknowledged source for the history of science and technology, and it has been translated to various languages, uh, two times into English and into Russian, and so many people already really worked on this book, on the book as in its entirety, but also in specific chapters, as it has these very interesting perspectives. Um, I was not so much interested about the book itself, but rather that Somin Shun has written or wrote about other stuff in other treatises, and that nobody really pays attention to that part of his writing. So... Um, at least when I started this project, my focus was more on the fact, or more on on these, yeah, on these uh, lost writings. We, they are not lost, but they were some nobody really recognized them. Mm-hmm. They were ignored. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I found it more interesting to, from the very beginning, to understand what what. Uh, what Sung's world of knowledge was and how it looked when you look at his writing in its entirety rather than like one one item that we find interesting for various reasons such as modernity, progress, technology, etc., etc. And I found the view would probably be all on, on what science and technology in the 17th century might have been in a way for these people if you take the entire corpus of writing of solution rather than just single out the one that interests us. Mm-hmm. Well, actually bringing up the idea of lost writings and the, just the fascination of lost writings is a perfect segue to bring us into your book itself, um, which starts for um, listeners who haven't yet had the chance to pick this book up. And I'm sure after this interview, they certainly will. They certainly should. It starts um, in this fascinating way, speaking of lost writings, with shadows and with a shadow puppet theater. Um, and, and this really brings us into what unfolds is the theater of Song Ying-shing and his life and his work and what that unfolds in, um, in terms of the story of artisans in the, in the 17th century and knowledge making. So could you talk a little bit about um, how you decided to set this up as a shadow play, as a puppet theater, um, and how that structures the work. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a little bit difficult to explain because, in fact, this metaphor of a shadow theater, it, I think it was always in my mind, but it only was present like at the very final stage of writing that book that this is what I actually want to talk about. Certainly, at least those people who work in the history of Chinese science and technology, but presumably also those who don't, uh, know about the specific role Chinese science and technology has played in, in, in the historiography of science and technology. And there is always this issue about what science and technology actually is and how it comes about and how you deal with it, how you conceptually approach it, etc., etc. And um, I think uh, the shadow metaphor or like the, the, the shadow theater allowed me to say, like, look, here is a completely different world. And to look at these different worlds, we have to be aware of the of the manifold lights that are drawn on, on history and how you can reveal them and that really the perspective on history changes with each uh, light source but also uh, with each theater play and um, 
that the performance is really important, that the performance of when, how, why something happens is really important to the, at least in, in the case of Sun the technical knowledge that is preserved in such a book. And um, certainly I was also thinking about like alluding to issues such as the cage metaphor, the idea of, of, of the various levels present in, in, in our own mind and all these facets coming up. And I, I thought that the shadow puppet play, which is such an important means of circulating knowledge, or was such an important means of circulating knowledge in Ming times, would make that clear. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think... Excuse me. This is a three-way interview among you, me, and my rhinovirus, apparently. Um, I I think I absolutely agree. And um, the way this uh, metaphor of the puppet theater works to introduce the book really sets the stage, pun intended there, for the way the story unfolds afterwards. And so this, if if, uh, we may, this actually also gives us a chance to go a little bit deeper into um, the way the story unfolds. Um, now, what the reader finds after this introduction that just, I think beautifully, um, and it's beautifully written, um, sets up Song Yingxing and this stage of Ming uh, knowledge making, is that each of the sections afterwards, each of these chapters, open up um, essentially by kind of pulling the curtain back and opening with a quotation by, from one of Song Yingxing's work, works as a way to... Um, kind of introduce the characters and set the stage. Um, and I think this is a, a wonderful way for us to get more into Song as a character as well. Um, so in, the, in chapter one, for example, which is private affairs, it opens with, a, I think, a beautiful quotation. The end of spring is approaching. I am going to have a break and travel in the Qian Mountains. And you open with this lovely story of Song having a picnic um, and sort of... It, but it's also a very strange story, right? I mean, this introduces us to Song. He's having a picnic, and um, in this really odd way, um, he finds out about this event um, that really troubles him, um, and that really sets the stage for a lot of the drama um, later in the story. So could you talk a little bit about um, about that scene? So here we are. Um, can you describe a little bit about who Song is, who he's sitting with, and what is this dramatic event um, that gets him so hot and bothered, and, and why is he so bothered? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I can give you a little bit of background how I came, or how this story actually came about. This is, in fact, a part of the preface uh, of one of his writings, The Yay, An Oppositionist's Liberation. And I recall when I first read this, uh, this whole oppositionist deliberations, which is probably the first time I did that was 10 years ago, I ended up with the feeling like, God, this is the most boring stuff I've ever read. <laughs> it's all about morals. It's all about the disappointment of an, uh, an official in Ming times, very unimportant guy. It's so uninteresting. How would anyone really want to read that? And I think in a way, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit. It's not that boring, but this was kind of my first impression when I came across it. And 
I realized that in a way, the actual content of that book, but also the beauty of that that writing, uh, notwithstanding that it's really the writing of a frustrated official, only reveals when one really understands um, or like understands a little bit more about Sung Yixing's situation. So, um, in fact, in this preface, he's he's giving us a like I think for his colleagues and as far as I can uh, reconstruct that, a quite common situation because there were so many Ming officials in the 17th century who, who were really sitting in whatever unimportant locality and frustrated about their position, about their career, about their private life. And Sun Yixing must have been one of these thousands, I don't know. And... Uh, then thought he wants to do something really important. So he sets out to write this this piece. So I think that's why it was the perfect scene to to open that book, because it opened my eyes to that there is a real drama behind that. And it is for him a real, really traumatic situation at the age of the 50s. So um, I think that's why it works so good as the first entering chapter, because when you really look at it from his perspective, really a little bit emotionally getting into his situation, then it was a, a, a traumatic situation, a tragedy that required his immediate reaction. And that also explains that like dealing with technology at this point was for him so urgent. Mm-hmm. And that is, yeah. So for readers, um, sorry to interrupt very briefly, for readers who haven't had the chance yet to read this chapter, can you very briefly describe um, what this event was, um, sort of who this guy Chen Qixin was and why this bothered Song Yingxing so much? So just to sort of lay out the, the stage there. Yeah, yeah. Very briefly, Chen Qixin was a, uh, a military guy and he managed to get into the court Um, or into a high court position by drawing attention to himself in front of the palace gates when the emperor passed by. So that's something that many people at that time tried and many also succeeded. But with Chen Qixin, I think the crucial point for most, not only Sun Yixin, but also much more prominent colleagues of his time was um, that um, he as a military refused to take the civil service examinations. So most of his most of his colleagues, including Sun Yixing, considered that a real th- yeah. threat or challenge to their to their own career chances and their ambitions. So I think about two thirds of the officials of that time, in one way or the other, at one point or the other, commented on the situation. But for Sun Yixing, I think. It was a crucial moment in time because in his 50s, he felt like he had really lost his entire career, whereas a guy such as Chen Qixin really could make it into major court positions. And what is, what is I think, the second important point in that is that Chen Qixin has brought forth or brought forth a critique that Sun Yixing considered mm-hmm. rightly his critique the correct way of criticizing the situation. But because he had done it in a dishonest way, 
Sung Yin-shin could not do it anymore. So he really felt like, okay, now that's the end of my career, the end of my story. And now I really do what I always wanted to do. I've lost all my chances to go into a, or like to, to manage a career. So now I just can do whatever I always wanted to do. And the interesting thing is that when you, you like shift the emphasis a little bit from Tengong Kai and look into all the other writings he did, that then he starts to write an entire panoply of panoply of of things, yeah, about different issues. And then I think it looks quite different. Right. I mean, yeah. it's just it's such an arresting scene um, to begin with, right? I mean, you have Song Yingsheng, who, as you describe um, in this first chapter, isn't really from a very you know, high-level family. He's he's not someone you would ordinarily think to focus on, right? I mean, he's not. He doesn't have any special kind of background, but he's somebody who has is just one of many, many people who spent his entire young life just slaving over these examinations and um, getting this education that would ostensibly guarantee you a high-level position and a voice um, in helping the emperor guide the country. And then, you know, what happens? He's, he's 50. He's been doing this his whole life. He's frustrated. And then this guy, Chen Chi Xin, he hears, has, you know, just barged into the palace, flouted all convention, just basically yelled what he wanted at the emperor, has no background. He's this military guy. You know, why should anybody care? And he winds up at the end of the day succeeding, right? So you can sort of almost feel the frustration that Song Yingxing, he's, you know, in his 50s, right? He's sitting down um, at, you know, why does this guy, who incidentally is making a pretty good point, you know, he, he doesn't do, uh, have I wasted my life? Basically, I mean, you could sort of sympathize with what he's going through in this, but I think really excellent way of introducing us to this scene. So to um, after, you know, we're introduced to this scene and through this really wonderful picnic, um, you really uh, bring us into uh, more of the social world and the intellectual world that Song is working in when he finally does get to this point where he decides, okay, now I need to start working on material that's going to, that I'm going to use to make a difference. Okay, he sort of, this stimulates him to want to do his own writing. Um, and you begin the next chapter, again, with just a wonderful quote from this book that he's written, An Oppositionist's Deliberations, which I think is also great. At the height of order, thoughts and ideas are in disorder. When disorder is at its height, thoughts and ideas are in order. Indeed, this cycle has been the leitmotif for many generations. So can you talk a little bit about um, the sort of um, Song's ideas of order and disorder and his social group and um, what brings us into these next chapters and his wider social world and um, his ideas about nature? And So can you talk a little bit about uh, his context in that way? Yeah, I, uh, yeah, that's a really. I, I mean, the second chapter, I think, for me, had two two major points. Uh, for one, I wanted to show that um, when Sung Yingxing really set out for for writing about what he considered would order the world or diminish the chaos of his time which is an incentive uh, at that point in time many officials in a way had, but they really followed it in very different, like they tried to do it in very different ways. I think that he he started some really unusual thinking. And this unusual thinking uh, 
was not necessarily the fact that he was uh, talking about technology, but it was the way in which he conceived of order and where he thought he could find it. And uh, that is one point. And I think the other point that I've tried to make in the, in the second chapter uh, and why I choose this specific um, quote is probably to, to consider a little bit um, the idea of what a scholar actually was in some times and to probably also to, to take that a little bit apart and to uh, not always have this idea in mind of a theoretically inclined uh, person mostly concerned about civil service examination and classics, but that like it's the word scholar in English that invokes all these ideas, but it's not the Chinese word of sure that actually of scholar that really goes into this direction. It has so many, many levels that like also with a dichotomy of I think I want also want the reader to think about this issue, like, is it a scholar, an artisan, and a scientist? What perspective is taken by this guy when writing about um, a broader context of order? Where, where do you find principles? What kind of principles do you find? How are formula uh, found out, like, uh, uh, found out from observations of nature and and all this kind. How do people approach that in their time? So this was the major idea when opening up with order and cast. Yes, it's a it's a major incentive for these people to write, but no, it's just it's not something very basic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is and you you just mentioned uh, a term that I think um, is something that. Uh, Scholars of history of science and technology um, in Europe, for example, um, bandy around a lot, but we don't talk a whole lot about in the field of Chinese studies, um, which is artisan. Um, so for in Song's times, what was the difference between a scholar and an artisan, or what was their relationship? And can you talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. I think that's a very, very difficult question, uh, those who are doing Chinese studies may not know that, but in the history of science and technology, there's so much discussion about the relation between technology, or like praxis and theory, and uh, probably also the um, what has what has come from the artisanal side and um, fed into scientific um, efforts. I would say. Uh, I think in the Chinese case, we are so we are so used to think about the Chinese literati primarily as theoretically inclined philosophers, people who are so completely detached from life that they don't know how to drink wine <laughs> or do anything in, in everyday life. And I think um, that uh, the scholar and the artisan were probably much nearer, especially um, at the end of the Ming, and probably that people were more um, connected to various kinds of life and knowledgeable about both the practical and the theoretical side than we usually would consider. So that's something... 
I, I cannot really answer that question, but I'm not quite, I'm not, no longer after having, uh, having done that book project, I'm no longer confident in this, in this clear distinction between scholar and artisan. Yeah, and in fact, I think a, a point that comes out really beautifully in these next couple of chapters um, is that for, for Song Yingqing, this traditional divide between scholarly knowledge and artisanal knowledge um, really isn't that firm of a divide at all. And um, uh, can, I think what these chapters do a really good job of is using some really fascinating examples. So you talk about salt and porcelain and silk and gunpowder and cooking oil. I mean, these chapters just range so wonderfully broadly and just sparkle um, with fascinating examples down to bricklayers, um, the makers of the bricks uh, that formed some of the city walls. Um, and you, uh, you use this to, I think, show really interestingly that um, there was a relationship between scholarly and practical knowledge for Song and his cohort. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that relationship between scholarly knowledge and practical knowledge and the role of training within that? Because I think this is really something that for readers who um, are very well-versed in Chinese history, or even for those who don't know anything, this is something that I think could really help us rethink this distinction between you know, theory and practice. And so relationship between scholarly and practical knowledge and the role mm -hmm. of training within that for Song. Yeah, I think um, what I wanted to show with my, suddenly the, the range of examples that I, uh, that I draw on are all in some way or the other taken from Song Yixing's book, his own book, The Tango Kaiyu, or from his other, uh, mostly from two other writings. So, uh, what I do is not a real translation, but I, what I really wanted to do is like to draw together when he says something in this book and something in the other book, how, how it is related to each other, because there is a relation between like what I would consider his more theoretical approach to practical things and the more descriptive approach to practical things. So... Uh, the reader will not not, nece not necessarily find something like complete translations of passages, but rather an intermingling of of, of various writings of, of his various writings. The relation between, um, I think, I think I'm quite, or I do not only think I think I'm quite sure that um, for. People like Sun Yixing, there was, they were certainly not um, very happy to make their hands dirty. However, they, I think they did not feel that there was a clear-cut uh, division between craft production or between the theories or the morality or, in fact, the material world that surrounded them. And uh, as such, they tried to, I think we can even see that in other people's writings, that um, when they talk about morality, it always has a very material side, or there is a uh, material background to it, there is a material manifestation to it. And uh, for Sung Yixing, the material and the morality in, in, in material things, or that is... In, uh, imposed or transposed to material things is somehow nothing different to the ethic 
to the ethical issues important to this world. And so he pr tries to bring that together or to explain the one by looking at the other or vice versa. So it's, a, it's, a, it's probably a mutual reflective side. I, sometimes I think I don't want to impose modern thought on it, but sometimes it reminded me of, of works such as that of Bruno Latour, who says, like, you have the seatbelt, and uh, there are engineers who think about security, and because they think about security, they invent the seatbelt so that you're not hurt while driving. So afterwards, people like, I, I imagine myself as a historian of technology, looking back in the 1970s at the invention of the seatbelt, I see there is a moral message behind the seatbelt. Take care while driving, don't hurt yourself, don't hurt your neighbors or the, the other people who are participating in traffic. And uh, I don't want to say that Song Yixing had the same thought, but clearly he saw that the order he was looking for was obvious in things or could be derived from things and from the material from the material workings, if something like that exists in, in the English context. Mm -hmm. so, in the making of things. But it's not only the making, I think it's the things themselves that were also relevant to him. Right, and, and in fact, I mean, this actually brings us to, um, I think, a really fascinating part of the book and really the heart of your book, quite literally, it's chapter four um, that we're up to now, um, which is uh, Song's writings about things themselves, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, his, I mean, one of the um, topics that's come up in our um, discussion today many times, but which we haven't actually really um, described in detail, is this book that um, Song, among at least historians of science and of China and Chinese science, is most famous for, right? It's this book that you translate as the works of heaven, um, and from which a lot of these fascinating examples um, that you write about come. So for our uh, listeners, can you talk a little bit about this book um, that's really, that many consider to be um, one of the books that Song is most famous for, that really um, brings together um, these kind of... Uh, maybe proto-technological manuals and ideas about the morality of things. And um, talk to us a little bit about this book. What is this book, um, The Works of Heaven? And um, can, you, can you describe it and talk about why you think it's fascinating? Yeah, the book is, consists of three parts and uh, 18 chapters. Uh, it has been described as something like an encyclopedic effort uh, in the sense of uh, D'Alembert or Diderot. Uh, so something that tries to describe the, the mechanics of crafts, the workings of crafts, and um, that tries to disseminate that kind of knowledge. What I'm quite sure about is that, it, yes, it tries to disseminate knowledge, but I'm not sure if this knowledge is about craft in the first place. Um, I would say that it is, um, it is a book, it, maybe I should say that first. The book starts with agricultural issues and it finishes uh, with pearls and gems, going through issues such as clothing, but also the production of sugar, uh, brick making, uh, weaponry, um, oil processing. So it has a really big or like huge array of topics in it. 
And all of these topics, Sung Yixing approaches very, very systematically. So he always starts with an introductory passage, uh, introducing the topic and its uh, relevance to uh, people, as he also places it into an historiographic context. Why is this issue important? What are its origins? Uh, then he, pers- he he really describes the, what we would consider a craft, or at least this field of knowledge, from the very beginnings of production, like from the raw materials, the entire processing to the actual use of raw materials and also regional diversity. So, and this he does with every subject and really very systematically. There is not even one of the crafts that falls out of this framework. You can always find all of these issues in all chapters. So that maybe also explains why this book is such a relevant source for the history of technology or the history of science, because for many of these fields, we do not even have other sources, or at least not in that detail. This makes it so relevant also. And this explains also why why other people already did work on this topic beforehand. Right. And one of the really fascinating things about this book that comes out um, in your discussion is that it was illustrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and I found that to be um, a really fascinating part of your discussion of the kind of work this is doing. So can you talk a little bit about the role of images um, mm-hmm. in Song's work and um, sort of how we can understand them and the kind of work that they were doing and what they can help us understand about the history of technology? Um, in this yeah, as, as, yeah, thank you. As regards the images, I was drawing very much on Francesca Bray's works on images. She's, she, she, she and Professor Metaillé and Dorothea Lee. Man. She, they published a book on graphics and diagrams in Chinese history. So um, I really profited a lot from their work when I was looking at the two again and again, trying to understand what is actually in the images. Why are they actually in and into which context do they belong? I think that it's, it's very clear that the illustrations were made specifically for this book who made them or how the, the, the production process actually was, I cannot say. So it's not very clear whether now Sunin or some woodcarver or probably also um, a painter did this um, and was paid for it. That is very difficult to follow up. But certainly the, the illustrations when looked at in the context of other illustrations of this era, draw on on a common grammar. So I think that uh, contemporaries would have had no problem to decipher what was actually in the illustrations, although the content displayed may have been a very unusual one for them, because as Hegel and others have shown, most of the, Robert, Robert Hegel, I think is his name, have shown is that, that um, most of the illustrated works were probably novels or not necessarily that kind of technical topics Sun Yixin choose. Mm-hmm. So um, I think 
that with most of the illustrations, when you look at them in close connection to the text, uh, that it's not a question of either juxtaposing or being complementary or not, but they are, they are really part of the book and of the discussion going on. Sometimes to illustrate something and visualize something, but most often it's because they make an argument. They make an argument that uh, enforces a specific for example, within the text, or that is additional to what is said in the text. So they are not just, at least in, from my perspective, they are not just an illustration of the content or something that would make this book more, like, at least not for Sunishin, a coffee table book you can look at because uh, it's nice. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's fascinating. I mean, you're, um, basically the images are part of the argument. Yes. Part of what he's, that's, I mean, that's a, a really interesting way to think about images in a history of technology and science or really just history of knowledge text in general. And um, could, is there a, a particular example of an image that you think um, does this particularly well in his text or an example that you can introduce um, for readers who haven't had a chance to, mm -hmm. to browse through the images? Yeah, I think there are several images that make the point, but two probably really stand out. The one is the loom itself, which is the representation of order. And I think it's also the most elaborate, most sophisticated image of the entire book. So when readers really skim through the, the uh, a translation of the works of heaven and the inception of thing, I mean the, the, the original, they will immediately recognize this image as the one that is very fine line. The drawing is really quite elaborate. Then also... Almost every part of the loom has a caption, is explained. That's completely different to other images where you can, for example, only see a, a man with a plowshare or a man wedding a plant, mm -hmm. which is much more basic, I would say, and uh, which does also not explain neither the tool nor what the man is actually doing except the, a very brief caption at one point or the other. And I think um, another one that is very interesting is the series of, um, of images in the chapters on metallurgy, on metals, mm -hmm. because they show very nicely uh, that Song Yixing made use of the whole repertoire of ideas, or like of, uh, of, of ideas about illustrations of his time, so he really develops a, a narrative, an illustration narrative about how you can really get from the, from the raw material to the actual processing, what parts he thinks are central, no matter what we might think centered in the technical process. And he wants to draw attention to because here something essential is happening. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. fascinating. And, and I think... Um, Images are just one part, as you demonstrate in this book, I think really beautifully, of the kind of what we might call the epistemic arsenal that he's bringing to bear in his, um, in his work on things and the morality of things and um, order and chaos in the universe and how people and things are related to that. You, you talk a little bit about not just images as part of his argument, but also as we get further into the book, um, the, the sort of the role of experience and the role of um, the knower's body and also the knower's um, textual background in making 
um, arguments about nature. So um, as in particular, you talk about uh, the role of experiment and quantification um, in Song Yingxing's work. And this is um, particularly interesting because I think in a topic like this, um, it's... Uh, we are informed by and speaking to, but also differentiating ourselves from scholars who work on similar topics in the history of Europe, right? So can you talk a little bit about the um, sort of the, the importance of experiment and quantification for Song and also his concept of particles, right? And how that is um, informed by or similar to, but also very different from what we might be used to from reading about these sorts of things in the history of Europe? A very complex question. I hope I can answer it. Um, uh, an issue I wanted to make clear when uh, writing about Sung's way of quantifying experimenting with things is that for him, no matter whether we think that is like was a useful method or not, or that it was uh, was really or like we would consider that scientific or relevant, but for him it was very systematic. It was very and it was absolutely crucial for understanding how materials work or how transformation actually happened. So uh, he engaged with the materials. He tried to construct for for himself, create experiments that he thought could prove his point or could probably also uh, go against his points or his argumentation or validate them or disvalue them. And this is obvious, most obvious, not in the Tango Kayo, which is more descriptive in that regard. It is most obvious in uh, in his other writing, talking about qi. Mm. And in this talking about qi, he has various ways of like observing nature, or if that is not sufficient, starting to experiment. And when through experimentation, but also through observation, he tries to to really calculate the world in order to understand, like, how are proportions? Is there a yin-yang dichotomy? What is, uh, what is the, um, the, the relation between a transformation in which fire is involved or water is involved, both as the, as the theoretical issues, uh, as they are discussed in Chinese natural philosophy, or as the as the material representatives of fire and water. This is sometimes not very clear in his writing, what he's actually referring to, clear to me. I mean, I'm quite sure it was clear to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, within these experimentations, Sung and Xing finds out that there are material transformations that cannot be fully explained by the basic theory of yin-yang and of wuxing, like the yin-yang theory and the five agents uh, theory. Mm-hmm. So, he, so he, he, he finds out there is a leftover material, there is, uh, which he calls ashes, but there is also a kind of material uh, which he mainly finds out also through a very nice experiment, I think, with a fish and uh, um, a human which he, I like that, I like that. Can you tell us a little bit about that experiment? When I was reading it the first time, I thought, like, God, gosh, I hope he never really did that, <laughs> because what he's describing is that uh, 
uh, in, he, he says like something like, imagine an official in, a, in an examination cabinet, which was a very, very small room, in, in, at least as, as far as we know from Qing Dynasty, uh, where the candidates were kept uh, to take the exams for the civil service examination. So he, he invokes this image of the civil service examination and said, like, put one, of the, uh, one man into that room then uh, close it up so that nothing can enter and nothing can uh, depart from there. And you will find out, I think after two or three days, this man has died. And now do the same with a fish in a, in a, in a water basin with only a little bit of, of um, air left in that basin. Also close it completely up and uh, you will find also the fish has died. From both experiments, he then, he then concludes, we learn there must be somebody, both something both in the earth and in the water uh, that is necessary to survive and that cannot go through either brick or a wooden basin. So it must there must there must exist something like what he calls chen particles. Mm-hmm. So which I find is a really nice experience. <laughs> I'm not sure if he actually did it, but it's cute and it's um, it's in fact. Very, very serious for him to explain. There is a, there is a, I wouldn't even say a substance, but there is a condition of whatever he thinks constitutes the uh, everything, qi, yin, yang, the five agents, um, a, a special condition that must be there, otherwise man and fish cannot live. And so the image is a very nice one. The, the way he really puts up this entire example, the way he illustrated for his colleagues, I think is really extraordinarily creative. That's great. That's, that's a fascinating example. <laughs> and it's just, um, I think it's the kind of example that really, for me at least, as a reader, makes me want to go back and read more Song Xing. I mean, I think this... Um, this book does a wonderful job of introducing us to um, this scholar and his work that we, sh- you know, it, after you hear about these examples, like the man and the fish being set up, you think, where has this man and this fish been all my life? You know, I need to go read some more Song Yingxing. Um And, you know, the book actually goes on, your book, to also um, give some great examples of acoustics and the importance of the human voice and Song's ideas on that, and I, I think really, um, without going into too much detail, uh, the we've we've been through many acts of this theater that um, your book really beautifully unfolds for us, from um, this man sitting and getting angry at a picnic to um, all of the reverberations and consequences of this um, afterwards, and really down to the reception of his work um, later on, and and even how we think of this today. Um, If we could uh, sort of close our discussion of this book uh, a little bit by um, looking at one of the uh, discussions that you bring up at the very end of the book, um, which I think is very relevant to readers from all different fields um, who are going to pick this book up, which is how does this, um, how did the experience of writing this book for you and how does um, your engagement with the world of crafts and craftsmen and artisans and scholarship and training in this period really change um, the way you and the way we might think about the landscape of the history of science and technology in general. 
Mm-hmm. Sort of what, how does this change things for you? Wow. I don't know if I can answer that question. For me, it changes things because I think that we usually have, we have really to change our perspective on how we look not only at things and affairs, but also how we search and what kind of explanations we search for. And uh, if that's, I think for me, this has come through mostly by just throwing away or what I call the baggage or the luggage uh, that history or historiography of science in, in a way has brought about in Chinese history and unfolding these these levels from the very point, I think, the, these Sung Yingxing wrote his works and uh, everything that came afterwards, this is, I think, for me, really a completely different story because there was this this Song Yixing who wrote a book, who wanted to have an impact in his time and uh, who was or was not received very well by his colleagues. But then there really starts a really new, new history and a history of how the book was read, what it was actually considered to be for, and this, I think, very early on, this is a really nice example in Chinese history for that, started to compl- completely detach from from the actual purpose that the author assigned to this book. And uh, so this also happened at quite a late process of producing that book when, because in the beginning, I always tried to write that in the beginning, and I felt like, no, it really distorts the... Mm. The image, that, or like at least what I really want the reader to get from this book. Rather, I put it at the end and say, "Look!" And now, if you look at what happened afterwards, after you've considered Sunishing in his own shadow theater with probably a different light drawn on it, then probably the entire history afterwards looks also completely different. And you can see that there is a, like a history that not easily fits into the not only into the narratives, but that also develops its own narrative about how technology was approached, when it was approached, why it was approached, or how science also was approached, how both relate to each other, mm-hmm. that um, it looks completely different. And that's, I think, what I wanted to get at, at least in this last chapter. Now, maybe, I hope, the perspective then changes. Um, and you find different reasons for why this book eventually was preserved, why people in the Qing dynasty really were attracted to this book and thought about this useful content, if you want to use that word of Domokai. It was useful to them, so they used it. But again, there is, there is, a, there is a quite distinct explanation for the usefulness in that book because it was detached from what Sumin Shik actually wanted to have. And this, I found, really does not belong into the initial story about why Sun Xin wrote that book and his other writings. Right. So it might be a bit counterintuitive to place that at the end, but I thought it might work for the reader much better. Oh, mm-hmm. I, I, I think it works really well. And um, so we've taken up a lot of your time today, Dagmar, so... Thank you so much um, for opening this really beautiful world, um, I think, to your readers in this book. And I hope lots of people um, will have the benefit of reading this and getting introduced to Song Yingxing and his work. And I think it opens up some really wonderful avenues um, for the history of science and technology more broadly. Um, So what I'll do is before uh, we sign off, I'll ask you after... um, 
having introduced us to this fascinating work that you've just written, um, is there anything that you're reading these days? This is my traditional sign-off question for these interviews. Anything you're reading these days in any field that's particularly exciting to you that you would recommend to listeners um, of this broadcast? Mm, yeah, I have something, but that is a really different, no, no, probably not a completely different topic. Oh, that's fine. But, yeah, I moved on to a, uh, another topic now, looking more into this, like the world beyond books, the storage devices that people used and thought useful to disseminate uh, practical knowledge. And uh, one of my colleagues recommended to me a catalog by... Um, I think a couple of Jewish or mostly Swiss authors, but also some Americans, uh, on uh, Wenzel Jamnitzer, who is a, a goldsmith of the 16th century in Europe. And he writes, about, there are really some very, very nice articles on that, on how people of that time started to use sketches and uh, change the, the whole working process, but also how they did inventory drawings and what they tried to depict on these drawings, drawings that were usually disposed after user. And I found this really fascinating. It's an exhibition catalog, but it's wonderfully written. Yeah. Great. Well, I'll, I'll definitely go check that out this weekend. So thank you so much, Dagmar, and um, best of luck on your next project. And thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. This is your host, Carlin Abbey, for the New Book Network and the New Books in East Asian Studies channel. See you next time.